Welcome to the Safe and Effective Podcast, a show that dives deep into the world of medical human factors and user experience. I'm your host, Heidi Merzad. Are you passionate about making a difference in the medical field? Curious about the science behind designing usable, safe, and effective medical devices? Look no further. Every episode, we bring you exclusive interviews with experts from industry, academia, and government as they share their insights and experiences in the rapidly evolving world of medical human factors. From case studies to regulatory updates, we've got you covered. Stay ahead of the curve and learn valuable lessons that make a real impact on patient quality of life and user experience. Whether you're an industry expert or a novice looking to expand your knowledge, Safe and Effective, the Medical Human Factors podcast is for you. Join us as we explore the world of human factors and its impact on the medical device industry. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast platform. Stay tuned and remember, be safe and effective. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Yes, hello. It is episode 284. We're recording this episode live on May 25th, 2023. It's Human Factors Cast. I am your host, Nick Rome. Joined today by Mr. Barry Kirby. Hello and good evening. Hey, that person who used to come into the show notes to write like little funny names for us, come back. We like those. Welcome to the show. Tonight, we got a great lineup. We'll be discussing the role of this new thing, the chief trust officer. Later, we'll be answering some questions from our community, such as how can I determine if UX and UI design is the right career path for me? That talks about validating ideas from leadership and... Do companies hire UX researchers for research work that isn't specifically related to UX? All that and more. But first, we got some programming notes and a community update here. As I mentioned last week on the show, Safe and Effective followed our show. It launched. It's out there. You can go and listen to it. It's, it's out, anywhere you are listening to Human Factors Cast right now, you can find Safe and Effective. And if you want to, go to the website, safeeffectivepodcast.com. That's Safe Effective podcast.com it's funny because there's it's e it's s-a-f-e-f-e-c right but if you look at all of them there's this f-e-f-e-c and the anyway go type out safe effective podcast.com and you'll see what i'm talking about there the first episode's out they do a regulatory heidi does a regulatory roundup with janet Kraser and it's a great talk and uh, there's even some familiar voices in there let's say that and that's enough of a tease Barry, I'm dying to know, though, what's going on over at 12.02? So at 12.02, we've got the interview with the chief executive officer, Ben Peachy. He's, I keep on saying he's new. He's been in post now for about six, seven months. And he's the guy who is driving all of my whims, my ideas, and is the person who has to tell me, no, Barry, we can't do that. So he gives us an insight into what, he, what it's like to do for his role, why he wanted to do the job, and the background into his previous roles and his previous drivers and which kind of influences the decisions that he makes today and why he's doing what he's doing. Really good, really interesting. And you get to learn a lot about really the man behind the CEO, as it were. Great. 
So are you saying that he's the brains? You're the brawn. You make it happen. Unfortunately, he's the brains and the brawn. I think I'm just like okay. largely a figurehead. Okay. You say, well, there you say, go. Says what he te- says what Ben tells me to say. And there's that. All right. We know why you're here. You're here for the news. So let's get into it. That's right. This is the part of the show all about Human Factors News. Mr. Barry, what is the news story this week? So this week we are introducing the Chief Trust Officer. According to Deloitte Research, the concept of trust is becoming increasingly important for organizations in the digital age, where misinformation, cyber attacks, and rapid digital transformation are commonplace. Trustworthy companies outperform their competitors by up to four times, and employees who trust their employees are more motivated at work. Despite these benefits, only 19% of organizations have dedicated C-suite leader focus on building trust. This gap has led to the emergence of the role of Chief Trust Officer, or CT, little r-o, or Citro, however you want to pronounce that, who can help organizations build trust across the organization and partner ecosystems. However, the need for a Citro has not always been apparent, and their emergency is a response to the growing importance of trust building in the face of media polarization, geopolitical uncertainty, and the scrutiny of data. A Citro or CTRO can help organizations earn and maintain trust and be an effective differentiator, competitive differentiator. Overall, the trust of trust, the, the role of trust in employee engagement, customer loyalty, and financial performance is becoming increasingly important. And practitioners in human factors need to contrib- contribute to this emerging field to ensure organizations learn to build trustworthy products and systems that can support the growth of the business. Nick, the killer question here is, are we going to get a Citro in the next Human Factors cast C-suite meeting? Of course we have a C-suite meeting here at Human Factors cast. There's executives and corporate figureheads and all that stuff. Yeah, no. Look, here's the thing is that uh, I don't know how to answer your question. uh, Are we establishing trust with our listeners? I hope so. I hope you keep coming back every week because you trust our opinion or you trust what we bring to the table. This story is quite interesting to me because when I first read it, I was like, I, okay, let me actually read my notes verbatim here in the show notes. At first I was like rolling eyes emoji. And then I was like thinking emoji, but truly this did have me going, okay, we need another C-suite role here. (laughs) Pay them way, way too much money to do the things that they do. But this could be a huge thing for user-facing teams. So UX, ultimately, this could be a great thing for the end user because this report is advocating for the creation of these roles to help better get consumers to trust a product or brand. And to me, this got me thinking about several different ways to tackle this one. But the most interesting piece that I thought of is Right now, you have tech CEOs who are out to protect their company. And you can imagine that anyone in the C-suite would probably do that. But what if they started throwing out these CTROs, or let's just call them cilantros? Just put a couple extra words in there. I'll have ChatGPT come up with something in just a second for that. But I think if you put these guys out in front of a government official test of testimony type thing where you know you have they can talk about it from that end user perspective in a way that is not necessarily a business decision. The, their role 
in this thing might be business related in the sense that trust drives business, but ultimately they could talk about it from what is happening at an end user perspective. And to me, this would be someone who would live even above a director of UX or something like that. And you could have UX and product and marketing and sales and everybody reporting to this Citro or under this Citro or whatever you want to call it. And it's just an interesting addition that this is something that we're starting to think about. And it's really exciting, actually, when you think about it from this perspective that, okay, trust is really important from a consumer standpoint. And why is that? It's because trust is a seminal human factors tenant. Barry, I'm, <laughs> okay, I'm reading your first word there. What are your thoughts on this? So I think this has the potential to be interesting and to be potentially do some good stuff. But given where we're at the moment, could it just be perceived as all a bit woke? And is it, could it be perceived as just being a reaction to where we're at today? And the fact that it, it has the opportunity to be seen as just a fluffy cloud of a job. Now, and I think this is quite interesting when certainly in the United States, you've got some polit political things going on that is seems to be very woke or anti-woke and driven in both them ways. And so this is where this sort of role could get, get shrunk. Here in the UK, we have roles, senior roles, that are things like diversity officers and things like that, and chiefs of diversity, that a lot of people, some people see, yes, that's a great idea and a great role, but gets lost in the woke or anti-woke reaction. So I sort of caveat that with, I don't think we should worry, or I don't think, I would like us not to worry too much about that sort of reaction if it's the right thing to do. But we also know that we public perception is quite key in C-suite roles. So that out of the way, I think this is, I, I was very similar to you in when I read your reaction to go, is this what? Is it, are we going to talk for this? Is this just, and then the more you read it, and actually it's the first time in a long time I've gone and read the article and then gone and re read, read the report behind it. Because I was like, okay, where can this go? And as long as they're given the opportunity to do the job and supported to do it properly, actually, it could be quite cool because it's not just a people role. I think we've got a huge opportunity here, as you quite rightly say, the UX the side of it. But actually, it is not just about people within the company, but it's company to company. It's external perceptions coming to the public and, and all that sort of stuff. And it can encompass a lot of things that we probably just find uncomfortable. But is it also a technology role? So we're talking about trust in technology. Can we trust the information that is going in and out of our systems? Can we trust the information within? And so you could actually say that there is a, a technology role in this to make sure that the technology we're using within a company is trusted. The stuff that we're giving out can be trusted. So there could be a good technology piece. It's obviously the down to the psychology there. So once you start bringing in the technology and the psychology, that's a human factors role, isn't it? Because that's what we do. And then we also go on and say that human factors is the thing that glues projects together. Maybe this Citro HFE type role might be the thing that actually gels a lot of companies together at the C-suite level. And it's the, possibly the first role I think I've seen that actually would suit an HF professional to go, to, to go direct, in, direct into the C-suite, which is interesting. So, yeah, I've gone from a position of really just another woke, wokey thing to do that to actually, this could be quite cool. Yeah. 
I, so really quick, can we just call it cilantro and be chief intelligence analysis trust officer? You didn't listen to a word I said, did you? You've just been playing around with ChatGPT to come up with a new new term. No, I listened, to, I listened to you. You said woke, <laughs> and then you said what you had the same reaction I did. So I just shorthanded it. But yeah, I think you're right. The fact that a human factors practitioner could step into this role is absolute. I agree with that. Yes, 100%. Because if you think about this in terms of a strategic leadership position within organizations, the piece that's interesting to me is that we as human factors practitioners would be the advocate for the user. There would be, I fear that this role would transition from something along the lines of chief trust officer to from trying to build and maintain trust among the users to something along the lines of how do we generate the most trust maybe not have their best interest at heart. So there's an interest, there's how do we use their data for nefarious purposes? There's, there could be a ton of twists to this role that could make this bad. Absolutely. I guess it's what I'm saying. And this could be something great for, I, I think genuinely, a lot of people in UX and human factors have the user's best interest at heart when they come forward with a suggestion. They say, Users want to do X because of these motivations. And I think when you introduce business decisions into those things, sometimes those business decisions get in the way of the user goals. We're not going to let them do that because that would mean less money for us. Does that mean that the chief trust officer would then that role would be compromised in a similar way because at the C-suite, you're goal is to maintain the company in a profitable manner. And I think the interesting thing to this is that is, is some of the stats behind this, right? The research is showing that these companies that are deemed trustworthy by consumers outperform their competitors. And the metric by which is the, I guess the factor by which they are outperforming their competitors is quite astounding. Four times. Those that are trustworthy, four times, or I should say up to four times, outperform their competitors up to four times. That's a huge number. And so if you think about if companies were smart about this, they would hire somebody who truly does have the user's best interest at heart. And it would be a conversation. But the other thing, sorry, my, my thoughts are all over the place because I just thought of something else. You have what you don't have today is an advocate for the user at the C-suite level, which is just insane to me to think that you have a boardroom reading, meeting with the C-suite executives. And in there, someone says, no, we can't do that because the user would not trust our product if we made that business decision. And that is something insane that doesn't exist today. There might be folks that have that sort of thought or have introduced things like from a technology perspective, you can think like CTO, tech officer that, that bubbles stuff up from UX or whatever. And so some research says blah, 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 but they aren't an advocate. They are just like repeating research that's happened. So I just think that would be really cool to have that user advocate at the table in those C-suite meetings. I don't know. That's just one thought that came to mind. I've been babbling. Go. No, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think there is and this could go to the actual true point of understanding the definition of what this 
CTRO, the Citro, is going to do because trust appears in many places within a company. And, and I would challenge to a certain extent that I think the C-suite already does what they do in the best interests of the customer. Now, I'm using the word customer that is different from client, from user, yeah. because the customer is generally the person who's paying the money. The user generally doesn't pay the cash unless they're buying the product themselves. So then therefore they end up being the customer. They can so, be the same and they can be different. Yeah, yeah exactly. you're right. So if you're buying something large, so say government is buying something, the user is definitely not the customer. The customer is the person who hands, and in fact, you might have been in situations where you've got more than one customer, which is, gets terribly frustrating. So actually, who is the, where is the trust being built at that point? It's going to be with the current C-suite is, as you possibly do to, is going to be trying to build trust with the customer, with the person who's handing over the cash. In the theory, that they're not going to hand over the cash unless they trust that it's either the job has either been done or is going to be done. And so that's where that, that, that trust needs to lie. So would this, would a CTRO go in and how would they change that dynamic, if anything? So with the user and the customer. But I guess on, on a wider level as well, is there's also the internal trust issue, the trust between C-suite and employees, all up and down the business. There's a lot of talk now around just culture and the application of just culture. In fact, we've, I've done at least what two, if not three interviews on that at the moment. A couple episodes, yeah. And we've had, at the end of EHF 2023, we had a um, basically a panel discussion on ju just culture. And just culture and therefore would just culture be something that actually the seat the citro is going to would be in charge of because it's in there that is in their best interest that is the sort of thing that they'll be pushing again you've got the idea about trust in process you've got trust in technologies you've got things like that i think that the breadth of things that the citro could be involved in have influence in could be huge and if it wasn't huge if they couldn't get into all the different places where trust exists and is required, then they would then be useless without being able to do it. So there is an element of that. So if you have that, this I guess that there's talk about if you don't have trust already, if you don't have trust in an organization, you couldn't just appoint Citro and say, We've got a Citro now, and therefore everybody trusts us. What would they have at their disposal? So if we have the, uh, the C-suite for Human Factors Cast, we walk into the room and say, we need to build, we need to build trust. What could the Citro actually do to do that? What sort of, I don't know, what things do you think that they would have to have at their disposal in terms of tools to be able to do this sort of stuff? Yeah, no, this is interesting. And this really gets at the C-suite level decision-making that happens versus the like the UX level where they're in the weeds with the user. I think the first thing that comes to my mind, the biggest tool that the Citro would have over what exists today is what I described previously, that seat at the table. Yep, That is the biggest cudgel by which they wield that could make the biggest impact. If, and here's the other thing, that Citro has to have as much say as any other C-suite that, that's sitting on that bench. Because what happens today is you'll have, in, in corporate, you'll have folks lower down the totem pole that will advocate and say, no, 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 the user can't blah, 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 whatever the thing is. 
And yeah, that gets processed. That gets that message gets changed and altered and pushed up the line and then relayed. But if that chief trust officer is at the table and can relay those things directly to the others that are making the decisions, that is the biggest tool that they have. And so when I think about tools from an executive standpoint, I don't think of necessarily, oh, they're sitting there and they're using <laughs> SurveyMonkey to, to do these things. I think of the tools internally and externally that they have. So internal market research, UX research, they have any point of interaction with another, with a user or a customer. I think both of those factor into trust. And like we said, those can be the same. Those can be different. But I think their job is to synthesize everything from across the different perspectives. So you have sales, you have marketing, you have onboarding, You depending on the product, right? You have all these different types of things. You have UX, you have product managers who might go out and actually talk with folks too. And so anytime you have a lot of different moving parts and pieces, there's going to be various opinions on how to do certain things. And that chief trust officer's role will be to take the tools that he has, i.e. these various factions or segments of the business, take that information, process it, and then relay that at the top level. And then those decisions then get propagated down in such a way that you're not building a product that is going to be bad for the user in some way, shape, or form. And I think this also does another huge thing that maybe a whole lot of people aren't paying attention to, or maybe it's mentioned. I did read the report, but I didn't see any mention of the, the reducing risk piece of this, where if you introduce a chief trust officer and have that user advocate at that high level, you're then reducing risk that you're going to build the wrong thing. That's what UX has traditionally done, right, is to reduce risk in terms of building a product. But that's sometimes more focused around the decisions about how to implement something, not necessarily the decisions on whether something's right or not. Of course, there's the discovery phases, but they aren't ultimately the ones that are making that call. In a lot of situations, you have product or even the CEO that is driving directives down from the top. But having somebody like the Citro, Cilantro, you have them at the top making help, help making these decisions. I just think it's so powerful and it's an underrated thing that reducing that risk could have for a company. And then that ultimately just builds more trust with the end user, the customer, whoever you're trying to target in that with that decision that I think just I don't think this is going to solve all of our problems. Let me be clear. Facebook hires a Citro for Meta and <laughs> like they're not going to use our data differently. I don't think they're still going to sell it, but there might be some changes on our end that is like goodwill towards us that says, hey, we, we're going to de-anonymize your data and we're going to actually take out these few things that make it really clear who you are to them. That would build trust. I don't know. Maybe. I, part of me says, I think that you're not going to get to a C-suite role. Let's face it. The, I don't know. The, would it be that a, this Citro would get into the C-suite you don't get C-suite role without being a business animal of some description that you know you're going to, the first job of business is business. And I don't care what role you do. The first job of, jo first job of business is always business. If the business is not there, 
nobody's got a job. No, you haven't got a product. It's completely pointless. You become this Citro. Now, if the right sort of person is selected, the right sort of person is trained. So like we, we propose a, somebody with a human factors background, that would be great. Not the only fruit, but generally a good thing out there. But if they didn't, and they just appointed almost anybody, the last IT officer or something like that, that could really strongly influence and flavor what the Citro actually does. Because again, we're assuming that, that they will have a usability or a, a user focus. I'm not exactly convinced that they will. I think they, ideally from our perspective, that would happen, but would they, is there potential there for just saying, okay, we're going to have, a, we're going to deliver a lot of these initiatives within the company. We're going to have popcorn Friday because we also know that fairly simple things please employees. And because generally if you're hard worked, I remember being part of a company that suddenly decided to offer free coffee out of the coffee machine. You got three free coffees a day out of the vending machine. And, and suddenly morale from the business went up massively. And I was like, literally all they've done is given you three, three, three cups of coffee that were fairly rubbish anyway. The, and now you think they're the best thing since sliced bread. That is that, imagine that on a trust perspective. Do, is that going to actually work? I'm trying to play that, the, the counter, the devil's advocate in this. Because yeah. is it that, is, if the role, I think there, there is potential for this role to be done badly. In, in the same way as we've seen some companies, we've got a, a senior director of carbon or offsetting or climate or what, it, so that you turn around and say, what are you doing about climate change? We've got a vice president. We've got a, we've got a C-suite member in charge of that. And still there's, there's reports coming through today about certain companies that are actually worse off now than when they did. So healthy dose yeah. skepticism, I think. However, taking it at face value, it could still be, I guess then, if they do bring in these right initiatives, the right sort of communications as well, because communications is absolutely key. But I think you alluded to it earlier, the potential for this to provide value for the company, because I think some of the research in the report shows if you buy from a brand and you trust that brand a lot, you get quality product, but actually the brand itself, you think that's, that's I trust that brand. 88% of people who buy stuff from them are going to go back and do it again. And again, which is there's some products you buy, you don't actually know what brand it is. You know where you got it from, does the job great. You don't really care. But actually, if you get a brand that you think actually they're good, that, that it's good, solid product, I trust what they're doing. And I would trust them to go and buy something else from them that maybe is a bit more edgy or something like that, then that's going to work. Similarly, if you are in work and you've, we talked about just culture within the organization, if you trust your employer, to be making the right decisions and make it work. If you trust your employees, 79% of employees will feel more, more motivated at work or will actually feel motivated at work. That Those two stats in themselves should encourage more trustworthy organizations or the focus and development of trust within the organizations, you would have thought. Yeah, the thing for me is that you're talking about it and I alluded to it earlier, I, what I don't want to see this type of role reduced to, I shouldn't say reduced to because it would be a huge boon for the company is this change equals this percentage increase in trust. What is the least amount of things that we can get away with that would increase the trust? How do we combine these in a way that still gets us the most profit 
and the most trust. It's maximizing that profit to trust ratio. And that sucks. That sucks. If you think about it from that perspective, that just sucks. And hopefully it's not that. Hopefully, I think good citros, good cilantros will be the ones that don't leave a bad taste in your mouth. Will be the cilantro. The, the joke didn't land. This is all night, isn't it? <laughs> it is. The the thing here is that like you when you have yeah when you have a when you have a citro that is advocating for things like uh, effective communication between the company and its customers or its users or the even to the product side like the reliability of a product. Hey, this thing is breaking all the time. We need to fix these types of things so that way the users trust our product to work a little bit more. And then the other thing is this would have, if done correctly, oversight into even PR decision. You think about messaging and how things like integrity are important to people and the honesty, fairness, all that stuff. If a company comes out and says and cr creates a message about something that's happened, that is also trusting, or that is also touching trust. And of course, we've already mentioned sort of the empathy about a user customer perspective. And then the other things that at least come to my mind about what impacts trust with a company are things like how transparent they are with you know, things like their data practices or you know, their actions and decisions about product and things like that. Like, why are they making these business decisions? There are other things that I can think of too, like the competency of a company, how consistent their products are over time. If you get a phone from a company one time, and it's great. And then you get a phone from them the next generation and it sucks. That's going to contribute to your trust within them. And then there's obviously like other things like your past experiences. That's not something so much that they can alter, but they can start forming new experiences that then build that trust over time. I had a bad experience with an Apple a long time ago. I don't like using Macs. I have one for work, but I don't like using it. And so, but do I trust the company? No, I don't trust any tech company, but that's just me. <laughs> so I don't know. I think the biggest thing though, like for me as a consumer is like the benevolence of it. When you know that company has your best interest in mind, right? Like they, they are ultimately there for you. That makes me feel good. There's a couple of, to be clear, there's a couple of like products that I use that Ultimately, I truly feel like I am the center of their universe when it comes to making decisions. And it's the, to be, to be absolutely clear, it's like the companies with like smaller user bases. And it's a lot of companies like, like the one that we're using right now for streaming this and the one that we use for our website and those types of things where truly the user base is very small, but anytime I've had an interaction with the CEO of these companies, like that's how small they are. It's been truly to understand what my needs are and not necessarily, obviously they want my money, but it's truly, they're trying to build a product for me. And that's what ultimately keeps me subscribing to these things. So I just hope that it doesn't equate into, let's take a look at the spreadsheet. If we were to be X more transparent about these initiatives, that would increase trust and in, in by thirty percent, but and that would be a marginal business cost. Go ahead. But isn't that what they've got to do? 
And the and I guess this goes into how do you measure trust? Because you could argue that they bring in the citro, the cilantro, and say the uh, saying it. Uh, they they bring it in and it's just a fancy PR stunt. You know, we've seen as I alluded to earlier, there's other things that have come in that people go, oh, it's just what it is. But also the Citro has got a job on that C-suite to convince the rest of the business that it's worth doing. And the only way you can do that, because the only language the business truly understands, whether it's big or small, is bottom line. If you're not breaking even, if you're not making a profit, whether you're a private limited company, whether you're, you're publicly, your shares out in the market, whatever it is, you need to be making the money, the profit to make it worthwhile. So you're not going to invest in stuff if it loses you money. So the Citro has got to turn around and say, they, they've got to make a business case. They've got to turn around and say that investing in this campaign, investing in my team, which is actually something else that we should probably briefly touch upon, what, what the Citro team look like. But they've got to turn around to the rest of the C-suite and say, a bit like what we have to do in a human factors, human factors level, None of you get what I'm talking about. None of you get this human factor stuff. None of you get really get this trust, this Citro stuff. But if you do this, here's some numbers, here's some figures, here's an argument that says it's going to be good for the bottom line. It's going to add value to the business in some way. Because otherwise, you just wouldn't do it. Now, I think we are moving into this, into a time, into, into a state of civilization where we're at, where people do value trust in an organization people do value how people treat their employees people do value what does the diversity look like within a business which will might affect particularly more middle class people maybe slightly class people who've got the ability to choose where to spend their money might choose to spend their money in more ethic ethically oriented businesses etc cetera, etc cetera. but i think that's it again going back to the main point is how do we actually then measure trust do we have to do, do all keep on doing all these questionnaires that we get every time we buy a product? Um, do you trust this company? Is it a question in the questionnaire? Is it something that we have to do sort of mystery shopper type things with? Is there a measure of trust out there? I don't think there is. I think that it is a it's a subjective it's a subjective measure based on a feeling that might not stand up to actual scrutiny or fact, but it's something we're going to have to get a grip of for to make this work. Yeah, I think there are plenty of ways to measure trust. You have that like within the trust and automation field, or there's a couple I can think of off the top of my head. I think consumer trust is different. And I know that there are plenty of ways to measure that. It would be interesting. I'm actually skimming the article right now to see if there's any mention of measure or or how they how they gathered that. And I'm not seeing anything. Maybe like, you can do some quick searches too, but like there, there was, um, wasn't any that's why I, I bought the point. Yeah. I think, I mean, there are, they're using the DLEI trust framework, which is measuring it presumably against five core tenants, which is looking at leading by example, delivering with excellence, performing with distinction, securing the foundation, amplifying core values. But really, this, it's this yin and yang between competence and intent. Yeah. And I think that's how they're using it. But again, this, um, there's that isn't a measure. So the Deloitte Trust Framework was brought in as a, a way of explaining. It's a bit like what we do in human factors when you turn around and say, what does human factors look like? Cool diagram. So they turn around and it's still the sub elements of it are still all very subjective. So it's not an, it's not an objective measured framework in order to do it. 
because the measure things like con do you have good conduct yes no measures scale one to ten do you have authentic and re resilient leadership that's subjective because it's your if you did a 360 review on that you'll you get very different views etc etc but yeah it, but i think that's the point is that it's that subjectivity is the measurement right but if you're coming in with that and because if you measure the level of leadership within our human factors cast C-suite, I measure it. And so the lab members measure it. Would everybody would come up with a different number. Everyone would come up with a different opinion based on their perspective. And that's the issue here as well is the different people have the different measures. So it is a subjective measure. There's no, the true science behind it doesn't work in it's, it is a me frame where you couldn't come out with a seven, whatever seven means, and then compare that against another company in a, on a highlight comparison. Sure. Yeah. I, I disagree. I think there are probably not, maybe not with this one, but I think there are some measures out there that we could certainly look at. And I think this is really just offering ultimately just a different way to look at who's at the table at that C-suite. So I just looked at the time and we've been talking about this for what, some I, time. I so let's, yeah, let's do some final thoughts here, Barry. What are your final thoughts on the chief trust officer? I think it's got, it's a role with a lot of potential uh, as long as it doesn't get lost in workery. And I think if, if it's given the right bounds and ideas, I think it'll be interesting to see how that role develops. Yeah, for me, my final thoughts, don't mess this up. Don't F this up. Like this is, this has the potential to truly be a transformative role. And that, there's a reason why I chose the word could for the title of this episode. A chief trust officer could be a user-centered superpower. But that's only if we treat that role from the user perspective. And who knows, maybe they'll develop, develop some empathy along the way and, and it'll be the friends that we made along the way. Here's thank you to our patrons and all of you for selecting our topic this week. And thank you to our friends over at MIT Tech Review for our news story. If you want to follow along, we do post the links to the original articles and our weekly roundups in our blog. You can also join us on Discord for more discussion on these stories and more. If you want to vote on these, of course, you can always visit our Patreon. That poll is open to everybody. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Are you tired of boring lectures and textbooks on human factors and UX? Well, grab your headphones and get ready for a wild ride with the Human Factors Minute podcast. Each minute is like a mini crash course packed with valuable insights and information on various organizations, conferences, usability methods, theories, models, certifications, tools, and much more. We'll take you on a journey through the fascinating world of human factors, from the ancient history to the latest trends and developments. Listen in as we explore the field and discover new ways to enhance the user experience. From the think aloud protocol to the critical incident technique, focus groups, iterative design, we'll make sure that you're the smartest person in the room. Tune in on the 10th, the 20th, and the last day of every month for a new and interesting tidbit related to human factors. Don't miss out on the Human Factors Minute podcast, your ultimate source for all things human factors. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. 
Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our monthly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and access to the full library of Human Factors Minute, a weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you, as always, to our patrons. We especially want to thank our Human Factors cast, all access patrons like Michelle Tripp and Harris Ganey. Just today, welcome, Harris, to the Human Factors cast Patreon family. We're happy to have you. So, as you all know, as I mentioned it before the break, we do have you all choose the news. So, it's time once again for us to embarrass ourselves, and I will do it this week. Greetings, folks. It's your magnificent podcast host here, trying to sound suave and sophisticated to make this announcement of utmost importance. Available now on our Patreon page, you can decide what the heck we talk about. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Why should you care? Let me tell you, by choosing the news, you can help determine what we chat about on future episodes of this fabulous Human Factors Cast show. This is your time to shine, folks. Your voice matters feel like a politician. And don't worry, we're not going to hold this poll hostage or anything. Anyone can participate. Yes, even you, suspicious listener in the back over there, you can finally let your voice be heard. So what are you waiting for? Head over to our Patreon page, cast your vote on the exciting topics that you want us to talk about. And hey, if you don't like any of the choices, feel free to submit your own ideas. We're down for whatever. And uh, maybe not for whatever, but let's make it happen, people. Let's choose the news. Let's rock this Human Factors cast together. What'd you think, Barry? Did I nail it? That w- that was interesting. What I was just reading through, and I suddenly realised that because it it suggested putting various sounds in the way, we could have done most of the sounds. Oh, really? Yeah. Shoot. If I'd been more switched on, we next week we'll think about and cues and stuff. Because you wanted like sounds right. of crickets chirping, and we could have done this. But that that would have been great. I missed yeah. it, so I'm sorry about. That. All right. Well, thanks for being on the ball. All right. Let's get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. Ah, yes, it's that fabled part of the program. It came from, this is where we search all over the internet to bring you topics that you're all talking about. That's you. That's the community. If you find any of these answers useful, give us a like wherever you're watching or listening to help other people find this content or find these answers because they're useful to you. They might be useful to somebody else. All right, this first one up here tonight is by Maul the Great 8 at on the UX Research subreddit. They write, how do I know UX is... For me, they write, am I a good fit for UX as an inquisitive, empathetic, creative, and introverted individual with a love for design, psychology, and computers? I'm not sure if this field is right for me. Further, <laughs> furthermore, I tend to prefer working alone and striving prefer for perfection. Should I pursue UX internships to see if it's appropriate for me? Can I be a good UXer? even if I only have two projects on my resume, is it necessary for me to have a portfolio for internships? Barry, let's take this, let's take this one by one here. What are your thoughts on this? Do, do you think this person would be a good fit for UX? I think in terms of the characteristics they suggest, then yes, I think they certainly seem to have half of the right ingredients. But that they've only highlighted half of the job because it's not just about the role itself for UX design, but actually 
where you're doing it. So you could chuck yourself in for that job, but you've got to think about the team fit, the cultural behavior, and that all needs to fit because they, they say that they are a bit introverted, inquisitive, empathetic. You've got to make sure that the team you join will allow you to utilize your your personal characteristics to the best of their ability. Yeah, just crack on. But the only person who can tell you whether it's actually any good for you is you. And the only way you're going to find out is by going to do it. You might hate it. Not drama. Find another job. For me, it's yes, welcome to the UX stuff. We got cookies in the back. You're right. They do have, I think they have everything of the making here. And I don't know if necessarily researcher is the job, but maybe analyst, data analyst. Because if you come and you look at data, that's something that you can still be empathetic and inquisitive and creative about the way in which you display data or show those things, right? And so if you're working on, you you could be a researcher and just focus on the data and various larger companies will have the segmented out where you can actually, somebody goes out and talks to them and maybe they come back and research it, but then you have other data analysts looking at things. There's a fit for you somewhere. I don't know. Absolutely. All right, let's get into this next one. Pansy triple zero on the UX research subreddit. They write impact equals validating every single idea that leadership has. They write as somebody working in a UX research role, I am interested in understanding the nature of my job. I've noticed that there's some senior UXers seem to focus on validating every idea that comes from leadership rather than uncovering insights from quality research. Should I be doing the same to please my stakeholders? Or is there any merit in approaching research in a more open and unbiased way? How can I balance the need to phase, please my stakeholders with the desire to produce quality research? Barry, I thought this was a really interesting question. Curious on your thoughts here. Yeah, it's interesting because we get into, we've done it a bit today. You get into this almost combative role that your managers, the managers above you are not interested in what you've got to say and not interested in users and things like that. And that's not, I don't think that's the case. I think they've just got different drivers. Because seniors, I mean, they're stakeholders too. They're stakeholders within your project. If you're, if you're not producing what you need to produce, you're not producing the right information, the product will fail and the company will fail. Now, it might not be that they're not saying what you want to, what you want to hear. And you're right senior leadership will come out with drives or ideas that they want to happen but that's why they're senior that's why they they're up that they've gone up that tree is they're directing overall strategy for the company you're delivering a small part of or maybe even a large part of that strategy and see how it fits fundamentally i'll use this with caution but i'm gonna say they're not idiots most of them are not idiots you get exceptions but they've probably got insights and logic that you're just not seeing and that's what there is. Part of your job is if you think your what your research is showing needs to be communicated better or needs to be taken notice of because you're seeing something that will affect the overall strategy that will change the direction of the company in some way, small or large, actually the onus is on you to make sure that you can, it's no good just having good quality research. You've got to be able to communicate it as well. And sometimes part of the job is just knowing which pick which battle to fight. Some battles you really want to die in a ditch for, and others, actually, you, you, there is not enough time in the world and not enough life in to fight every battle. So pick what you do. So I guess slightly devil's advocate that, uh, yeah, seniors need a bit of love too. Yeah, look, ultimately a job is a job. And so if you are instructed to just validate, then, you know, how exactly what you were saying, Barry, pick your battles. 
how much do you want to be antagonistic towards a coworker about a disagreement? And is it worth your job potentially if, you know, an HR complaint gets filed because you're battling it out? I think ultimately your role here is to advocate for the user. And I think that's true no matter which research that you're doing. And I, it could absolutely be the sense, and it will depend on your company too, of like how you approach these problems. Are you, it sounds like they're definitely more post hoc analysis of decisions that have already been made versus that discovery phase of trying to figure out what it is that the users need. And there's, you can, you could do both. The thing with this is that there, it, there seems to be bias towards validation. And I think you can either validate or invalidate these assumptions. And I think both are valuable. If you come to the table and say, here you go, this is what we wanted to test. And it actually came back that the users don't want this thing. There you go. That's I, my job is done. I've told you what you wanted to hear. We tested your hypothesis. It didn't come back and we need to change course. Okay, if we had, if you had me in on the discovery phase a little bit earlier, we could have figured this out before we had made the decision to do this. But that's another battle that you can pick. I know that some companies use UX as a patch rather than a preventative. They use it as the aspirin rather than the, the, the stretching or whatever. I don't know. I can't think of a good analogy there. <laughs> okay, let's get into this last one here. This one's by Austin Baldy on the UX research subreddit. Our company's hiring UX researchers to do research work that isn't UX related. All these questions related to Nightberry, and they're all along the same lines that we talked about with the story, which is why I thought they were good. This person writes, as someone who works in UX research, have you ever been asked by your company to do research that isn't related to UX work? Is this a normal thing? How can you tell if you're being taken advantage of or asked to do something outside your expertise? Would appreciate any advice or insights from those who have found themselves in a similar situation. Barry. Yeah. There's a good chance you will. The researcher skill or the U, particularly UX. So a researcher skill isn't just focused around UX. Yes, you're taking on to do UX and you expect to do 100% UX work. But sometimes, you know, them skills are transferable. They're relevant elsewhere. So if you're in a position where the management comes and says, actually, could you come and do this bit of research for us? Then in many ways, that's a compliment. You've got skills that can crack on and do. Is it something that's normal? Is it something that I've been asked to do? Yes and yes. And the big thing I think I would pull out of this is be selfish about it. What are you going to learn from this? Are you applying your skills in another new environment that is actually going to give you a new bunch of insight and experience that then suddenly finds its way onto your CV and makes you imminently more employable? Or you can go and say, hold on a second, I've been doing my UX role and I've been doing this. I, you need to pay me more money. Or is it just something that is just a bit of a waste of time? If they're wasting your time or you feel your time is being wasted, then and you cannot resolve that. You can go and have a chat with them and say, actually, I don't think I'm doing the right thing. And they're like, oh, oh, terribly sorry. We thought you might like to do have the conversation. If you're not having the conversation, you're in the wrong job and bail. But I love taking on opportunities like that because you do genuinely make yourself more employable on the whole. Nick, what about you? What do you think? A job is a job. Your role is to act as an advocate for the user. But if they put you on research, you can, like you said, Barry, you can still use some of those skills. The funny thing is in the show notes here, I have the same exact answer for this one that I did for the last one. But I think there's, with doing research on a topic, like I tend to think of it as secondary research, right? So if you're working on a product and they have you doing research on, I don't know, 
something like code that is that does that fit your skill set it may or may not but the thing for me is like how does it ultimately relate to the user and if i am looking at other things going on in the industry maybe doing like competitive analysis i still consider that like ux work if it's like market research i still consider that ux work because i can ask questions that get at that the more difficult thing comes when it's truly completely absent of user feedback or when it's secondary research that doesn't touch your product in any way. But then again, I wouldn't understand why you would be doing secondary research on something that doesn't touch your product at all. And so for me, it's all part of the job. It's not necessarily like they're putting me on research task for something unrelated unless they're like the thing. The thing would be like, OK, Nick, you know nothing about Figma. I want you to go figure out how to use the third party plugin. I know nothing about coding either. So I'm just going to go do this thing and figure it out. And I'm not touching the users, but I get Figma skills. So there's that. So that would be kind of the way I think about it. Yeah. All right. And it's time for the show where we just do one more thing. Barry, what is your one more thing this week? So this week I had a rather strange, but really quite cool experience where I got to present my first external keynote as president of the CIHF, um, which was to the Iranian Occupational Health and Safety Conference which I thought was really neat because I woke up in the morning, went and did that conference, then I had morning coffee and I went to do my day job because I meant it was obviously a remote conference, but it was really good fun. It was, it, it was an interesting thing that I've learned about keynotes when you give a keynote because normally if you go and give a presentation at a conference or something, you're either given one on your paper or you've got a topic or something like that, whereas this was just what I could do, do a keynote speech. Great, what sort of topic would you like me to do it on? Whatever you think we'd like to hear. Okay. So I did. I talked for a significant period of time about the challenges facing us in the human factors industry with rising number of requirements and not enough people to do the job and therefore how that's going to be a put us in a poor situation further down the line. Good fun. So I hope I can do more of that sort of thing. I thought it was a lot better, a lot more interesting than I thought it was going to be. Nick, what about you? What was your one more thing? Was that recorded? Can I have that? I, it, I'd love to hear that. Talk. It might have been. If not, I could. Pro I've still got my slides, so I could probably rejig something. All right. And you, you well, from yeah, would love that. So for me, the I have been in a weird spot since coming back from vacation. I mentioned in the pre-show that I have a note that says to mention burnout when I greet Discord again. Um, there's and another interesting thing that's going on too is that I had a depressive bout as I came back from my vacation and. This is, there's this I have to talk about, but there's, I find joy in doing some things, right? Like playing video games uh, after my son has gone to bed. And uh, there, there have been two games that have come out recently. One, Star Wars Jedi Fallen, Jedi Survivor. And that one I beat before I went on vacation, was going to come back and was like, yes, I'm ready to play this. I am going to 100% it. I just haven't had the drive. I've found more joy in, in watching sort of like these short YouTube clips that just take seconds and I haven't played it in like a week. And then of course there the, there's the other big game here, T Tears of the Kingdom. And this, I was actually having a chat with one of our lab mates, Alex, about this, where this game is like three times bigger than its previous game. It's the new Zelda game. And it's like, there's so much to do. And for somebody who's neurodivergent and needs like checkboxes to click off and direction to be able to drive how I enjoy a game. There's like the game is truly free reign and is very open and you can go anywhere and do anything at any time. 
and it's all up to you. And in a lot of ways, a lot of people are very positive on this game. This game has got positive reviews all around. I am feeling so overwhelmed and just have, I want to get back to it. And I've got past the first area and I'm like, there's so much to do. And so I'm like super overwhelmed and it's just not a good feeling to, to want to play or want to do something and just have it fight you back when it doesn't mold with how you're thinking. So if anyone else is experiencing that, I empathize with you and hopefully it'll get better. But not to end on a downer, but that's it for today, everyone. If you like this episode, enjoy some of the discussion about, I don't know, C-suite executives then or UX or maybe all that. I'll encourage you all to go listen to episode 277, where we talk about the point of user stories. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, you can always join us on our Discord community. Visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. And of course, you can always vote on our next news story on our Patreon. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple things you can do. One, wherever you're at right now, leave us a five-star review. We love those. We love hearing from you. Two, and that is free for you to do, by the way. Two, wherever you're at, if you have friends, if you have friends, like Barry has a lot of friends, tell your friends about us. That helps us grow a lot. And three, if you have money and you want to give us some, just a buck gets you in the door with Patreon and truly all of your support really does go back into the production of this show. We couldn't do it without you and we truly appreciate all the support. As always, links to all of our socials and our website are in the description of this episode. Mr. Barry Kirby, thank you for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you if they want to talk about a little green seasoning? Cilantro. Yeah, okay. If you want to come and chat to me all over social media, I'm generally there on easy to find but on twitter i'm buzz underscore k and i'm there on linkedin and then other sort of places but if you want to hear me talk to interesting people in and around the human factors community then you want to head over to 1202 the human factors podcast which is 1202podcast.com i guess cilantro is more of an herb sorry about that as for me i've been your host nick rome you can find me on discord and across social media at nick underscore rome thanks again for tuning into human factors cast until next time it <laughs> Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organisations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202, the Human Factors podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do, sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense. <laughs>